The scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. It can be found on page 838 in the Black Bibles. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Johnston, so much. Thanks, Daniel, for that as well. Welcome. Good morning. Uh, great to be with you all this morning as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, yet another conflict that Jesus has with religious leaders, this time not with Pharisees, but with scribes. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that in just a second, but let's pray. Ask God to help us as we turn now to his word. Thank you, Jesus, for uh, your goodness, your grace and your mercy. We pray that you would meet us in this time, wherever it is that we are, uh, whether in complete unbelief uh, or whether uh, believing but struggling and needing encouragement or even needing to be convicted of our sin and our straying against you. We pray that you would meet us and work transformatively in our hearts and bring us to you. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Well, like many of you, uh, I, I'm going to assume, I went to bed on Wednesday night pretty bummed out. Um, I did have lunch on Wednesday with a Nationals fan, so they were happy. At least one member of Christ the King was happy. Um, but it was not me. I went to bed bummed. You know, seeing the, the Nationals after that last pitch kind of run on the field and dance around on our mound, kind of like we did at Dodger Stadium two years ago, I just felt horrible. I had invested so much time and energy into this thing I, like so much emotional energy the only thing that I'm happy about is that I didn't go to the game on Wednesday I almost did I was that close but I decided not to and I'm glad because after it was over and the Nationals were dancing on our pitcher's mound then you had to walk outside and it was like 40 degrees and raining and uh, I didn't experience that but my heart in my heart on Wednesday night it was definitely 40 degrees uh, and raining. And then came Thursday morning. On Thursday morning, I woke up early uh, because I made a pact with myself that even though my bedtime was constantly later than I wanted it to be during the playoffs, my wake-up time was not going to be, which is why I was grumpy and miserable the, for like three weeks um, until recently. But I woke up early, begrudgingly, and I went to the gym Parked in the parking lot uh, uh, at the gym, I walked down the stairs, I turned the corner, and I saw something there that I completely did not expect. Uh, there was a man, uh, I think he was younger than me, it looked like he was in his early to mid-40s. 
uh, definitely not older than me, pretty out of shape, but he was going to the gym, so he was, I, I think, trying to do something about that, but he was lying there on the sidewalk right in front of my gym. Now, the guy that's usually at the front desk who's, you know, kind of checking people in, he was standing there. He was on the phone, obviously talking to 911. Then there were three people, like two trainers and a passerby, who were doing chest compressions. They were doing CPR on this man. He was, his heart was not beating. And they were taking turns doing CPR. I was only in the way, so I didn't stay. I, I, I stopped and, 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 I, and I prayed. And then I went ahead and I went into the gym and I worked out. When I came out a little bit later, uh, the EMS guys were there and they were kind of packing up and cleaning up. And so I asked them, I said, did he make it? And they said, no, he did not make it. He died. This man died right there on the sidewalk, right in front of my gym. And two things crossed my mind right there in that moment. The first was this overwhelming sadness, you know, for this man and his family who was about to probably be woken up with some horrendous and horrible news. But the second thing is, is that I didn't think about Game 7 of the World Series once more that entire day now some people brought it up to me you know people were talking about it but when I was kind of sitting you know quietly when I was in my office when I was reflecting when I was just kind of doing what I do I did not think about that game at all anymore I haven't actually thought about it since then really perspective you know uh, for a while there I thought game seven of the world series was like life or death and then I realized very graphically that there is life and there is death and this baseball game was not it. Why would I let my heart get so wrapped up in a game like that? Uh, it's a dangerous way to live our lives. We do this with all kinds of things. We let our hearts get so wrapped up in all kinds of things, you know, sports uh, or, or our, our jobs or our material possessions or relationships that we long for, all of those kinds of things. Jesus knows this. And he is constantly dealing with it in his teaching and in his preaching. And he does it again in Mark chapter 3. In Mark 3, there are scribes. Now, Jesus has been in conflict uh, uh, the, the, the last couple of chapters with religious leaders in Galilee known as Pharisees. Pharisees were uh, religious leaders who really understood the Bible, but they were kind of more like the kind of... They were kind of more like the elite of religious devotion. The scribes were the scholars. They were the experts in the Old Testament. Uh, and these scribes came down from Jerusalem. We'll talk about that in just a second. They came down and they tried to focus people away from the work of Jesus. They tried to lead people away from what Jesus actually came down to this earth to do. They claimed that far from being a servant of God, Jesus actually came to be a servant of Satan. So far from speaking the truth, Jesus came to lie. Far from actually trying to heal, Jesus came to destroy. And this forces a choice upon all of us. Is Jesus who he claims to be? Has he come to accomplish what the Bible claims that he has come to accomplish? Forgiveness of sins, the redemption of all things. Of course, your answer to this question sets the trajectory for your entire life. It sets the trajectory for what your heart is going to settle on as what is ultimate and most worth pursuing 
in your life. And so Jesus presents this to us in this story, first by speaking to us the truth, and second by issuing us a challenge. So first, Jesus speaks to us what is true. He makes a significant claim of truth in Mark chapter 3. The scribes who come down from Jerusalem make a scandalous charge against Jesus. Jesus then responds to them by exposing all of the holes in their arguments and talks about why what they say is actually ridiculous. And then he reiterates the life-changing truth that he, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. Now it is no small detail in verse 22 that uh, the scribes who provoke this conflict with Jesus are not local Galileans. If we had a map, you would see that Jerusalem is in the south of that region. Galilee is in the north. The Pharisees and all the work that Jesus has been doing had been taking place in Galilee, by the Sea of Galilee. These scribes, these religious leaders, these cream of the crop scholars in the Old Testament, the text says, come down from Jerusalem into Galilee to see what's going on. Now, I'm going to take a couple of minutes here, parenthetically, to, to give you a little context here because this is one of those places where if you don't read carefully people would say but doesn't Mark know that Galilee is actually north of Jerusalem and so what Mark should say is they went up from Jerusalem to Galilee you know to meet with Jesus Mark doesn't even know his geography therefore we can't believe what he's saying is true therefore you know the whole Bible falls apart it's kind of one of those places where people you know say that the Bible is inconsistent so what is this up or down uh, with relationship to geography in the Bible well here's the deal up or down uh, as it is related to the city of Jerusalem in the New Testament, actually in the Old Testament too, we'll talk about that in here in a second, is not geographical. It's actually topological. You see, the way that we would speak about it is that we would say, uh, you know, if it, this actually fits in the context. You know, we live in Houston, the grand and great city of Texas, right? And if you had to deign to go to Dallas tomorrow for a business trip, you would say, I'm going up to Dallas, you know, for business. You know, like these people would say, you know, I'm going from Jerusalem to Nazareth, you know. Uh, can anything good come from Dallas? You know, I'm going up from Houston uh, to Dallas. Uh, that makes sense, you know, because it's kind of like a straight a kind of a straight line. And that's what you would think that they would say. If you're going from Jerusalem to Galilee, you would be going up. But that is not the point. With, re with respect to Jerusalem in the New Testament, it's not geographical it's topological. You see, Jerusalem is up, boys, because Jerusalem is both the high holy city and, literally speaking, the high city. Jerusalem sits on a hill. It's not really a mountain, but it is a, it is a hill. And to get to Jerusalem, you have to go up. You have to go up into Jerusalem and then when you're in Jerusalem you actually go up a little higher to get to the temple so the psalmist in Psalm 24 talks about who can ascend the mountain of the Lord who can ascend the hill of the Lord it is a psalm of ascents which was sung by the people of Israel when they were going literally up to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple so when Mark 
adds this detail that the scribes come down from Jerusalem into Galilee. They're making both a literal claim with respect to the topology that they are going down into the valley, into Galilee, but also a um, kind of a claim of irony. They're going from the, these are the cream of the crop legal scholars. They are going down from their ivory tower, you know, into the country kind of deal with this country preacher who's causing trouble over there in Galilee. These are the Harvard-educated Old Testament scholars who are going down to, to Mississippi to kind of meet with the Ole Miss religious scholars and say, oh, this is cute, y'all. You know, And that's what they're doing when they go to confront Jesus. They are using their, lending their weight. I went to Ole Miss. I thought about some Texas school, but then I was going to offend somebody in here. Uh, and I decided just to offend myself, if, if you're wondering. So... You know, so they, they're lending their expertise and their weight to try to set all of these people straight. This guy, this troublemaker, this Jesus who's stirring people up, no, they say. Don't listen to him, they say. Why? He is possessed by Beelzebub, which Jesus tells us as he responds to them is a synonym for Satan himself. So he is possessed by Satan and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So Jesus is not only possessed by a regular old demon, he is possessed by the devil himself. Now, this is a massively serious charge against Jesus. Remember, these are Old Testament scholars. So what is it that they know? They know that someone who is calling forth the powers of darkness to intervene into the world which is called sorcery in, you know, in the Old Testament, is subject to the death penalty under the Old Testament law. So these religious experts in the Old Testament are pronouncing in front of all of the people a death sentence on Jesus, charging him with breaking the law, with being a sorcerer, with calling on the powers of darkness to intervene in the world. So he's not only possessed by a demon, he's possessed by the devil himself. And they're saying, we are the experts, listen to us. So Jesus responds to them with a challenge, and then in the hearing of the people provides also an encouragement. The challenge is frankly to simply point out to them the completely misguided and, and, and messed up logic of their argument. In what way would it serve the purpose of Satan to fight against himself? In what way would it actually serve the purpose of Satan to destroy his own handiwork? That's the question that Jesus asks. It would be completely counterproductive. It makes no sense. So it must be something else. And in that something else, Jesus provides us an encouragement. The encouragement is that Jesus' presence in the world is there to accomplish exactly the opposite of what the scribes from Jerusalem just charged Jesus with. Look at verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his goods. Now this is a parable, of course, so in a parable we have to figure out who's who and what is what. The strong man in this parable is Satan. Satan, the strong man, is active on this earth. He's a bull in the china shop on this earth. In fact, 
even though he is under the sovereign rule of God himself, he has been given some level of free reign on this earth ever since Adam and Eve first listened to his lies in the Garden of Eden and believed him rather than believing God. Jesus in this parable is the thief. He is the thief that comes to rob, actually to take back what rightfully belongs him to him, his people, his whole earth. The entirety of the cosmos. To do that, he has to enter the strong man's house. How does Jesus do that? Christmas, the incarnation. Jesus comes down from heaven onto this earth. He enters the the realm of, of, of where Satan has been given reign to cause havoc. And now, he says, he ties him up. He binds Satan. How does he demonstrate that he is doing that? Well, he heals diseases. So he is foreshadowing the rule and the reign of God on this earth. He casts out demons, which is not working on behalf of Satan. It's working against him. He binds Satan. So that's the faulty logic of the scribes that come from Jerusalem. That Satan can't work against himself, his purposes would not stand. So Jesus is working against him, he is binding Satan. What does that have to do with you and with me? Well, it means that the ultimate demise of Satan and all of his attacks upon you is absolutely certain and sure through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, and this is a big but, but... Satan, who is bound, not, is not destroyed. He's still a very dangerous and a very real adversary in this life. Um, so, so he's bound up, he's tied up, but he's not completely destroyed. So he's still like, you know, like pulling against the goads. He's still like kicking and screaming and thrashing his tail around or whatever it is. And he can do damage. He's still set against the purpose of God and set against you. I once heard what living in a world with a Satan who is bound up but not fully defeated is analogous to. This person used this illustration saying, it is the difference between living our lives between D-Day in World War II and victory in Europe Day in World War II. There's about a year's difference between when the Allies invaded France in, on D-Day in 1944 and when the German army ultimately surrendered on VE Day in 1945. On June the 6th, 1944, the Allied military forces executed the largest amphibious assault in recorded history. It involved massive shelling from ships out in the English Channel and, you know, paratroopers jumping in behind enemy lines and ultimately and finally a direct frontal assault on the beaches of France and which caused massive, massive and unfathomable carnage. But that invasion that day ultimately succeeded. The Allies landed. They established a beachhead on France from where they could unload more troops and more equipment to wage war against the Germans. The goal was to unload massive amounts of human beings and equipment and push the Germans out of France, out of Belgium, out of Holland, back into Germany and ultimately have them surrender. Now, in hindsight, 
it absolutely worked. In hindsight, you can see that the victory of the Allies, as long as they did not lose their will to fight, was inevitable. I once had a, 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 a veteran, a World War II veteran, told, who actually walked onto that beach in France tell me, you know, um, it was by no means certain at the time that we were going to win. Uh, and I agree with that. So I'm saying, in hindsight, as long as the Allies did not lose their will, it was inevitable that the German force was ultimately going to crumble. They, they were simply going to be overwhelmed. They were fighting a two-front war and, you know, against the Allies in France and also in Russia. The German army, in that sense, was bound up. It was tied up, but it was not defeated. And because that's the case, they still fought for that year, and they fought really hard. In the winter of 1944 and 1945, they launched a counteroffensive, which has come to be known as the Battle of the Bulge, pushing back against the Allied front so much that it caused a gigantic bulge in the line and had certain of our troops surrounded at one point, a battle that could have possibly turned the tide of that war. But in the end, the Allies held out over that long winter, ultimately pushing into Germany, ultimately receiving the surrender of the German army in 1945. And here's the point. Our lives, your life and my life in this world, is like living in between D-Day and V-E Day. Victory is coming, but it is not yet fully accomplished. You see, D-Day was the coming of Jesus, the invasion of Jesus onto this earth on that very first Christmas at his incarnation. But V.E. Day is when he comes again and he takes that bound and tied up Satan and he casts him into the lake of fire, fully destroying him, fully defeating all of his purposes in this world world right now he's bound he's not defeated he continues to fight he continues to thrash and you and I will still experience his sting you'll feel the sting of a thrashing Satan when sometimes he whispers in your ear you know maybe you made a mistake marrying that man maybe you made a mistake marrying that woman maybe you were too hasty in your judgment maybe there is someone out there who would really get you and really understand you, who'd actually be perfect for you, and that person would make you happy. You'll feel the thrashing and the sting of Satan when gossip exits your lips. Sometimes that happens for us, and we're not even thinking about it. It's out there before we even think about it. And you experience that kind of immediate dopamine hit of feeling momentarily superior to another human being only to... Feel the guilt and the shame of murdering them in your heart. You'll feel that sting, that thrashing of Satan when he whispers in your ear that the only way to survive school in this day and age is to cheat because everybody is cheating. If you're not cheating, you're losing. Or you're that close to the business deal and you're afraid that it's going to unravel and you think, and Satan whispers, you know, a couple of lies here, a couple of financial tweaks here. Everybody would do this. You're so close. You see, he's still thrashing around. He's still trying to get your focus off of your Savior. He's still trying hard to get you to look only at yourself or to look at something else and to believe those things that are lies. So that's the truth that Jesus states. Satan is bound, but he's not fully defeated. 
Jesus has not come to join with him. He has come to defeat him and to take back what rightfully belongs to God, which is you, his people, and his earth, and the entire cosmos. And that truth leads us finally to a warning. What the scribes were doing, you see, was such that this charge that they made against Jesus, it was such a direct frontal attack on the person and the work of Jesus. It was so serious. It was so significant. It had such the potential to lead people astray from the truth and into complete darkness that Jesus issues a stark warning in verses 28 and 29 where he says this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. That's the warning. Now, in a nutshell, what he means is this. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in this context, this immediate context right here, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to take the work that rightly belongs to the power of the Holy Spirit that should testify to the truth of who Jesus is and to claim that it's a work of Satan instead. But this is not just a warning for those scribes who made this charge. Other people overhear this, and Mark writes it down for our benefit too. So what does this mean? And I say this because if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for some time in your life, it's possible that you've read this passage and it has caused you some level of stress in your life. Oh my goodness, there is a sin from which I cannot be forgiven. Have I done it? Have you ever thought that? I have. I have absolutely certainly thought that and been weighed down with that in my life. So what does this mean? We need to look at this really carefully. Well, the first hint that we get about what this, the, the, these words mean is that we have to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in the direct context of this passage. Jesus says, and there's also a companion passage in Matthew that sheds some more light on this, but Jesus says that he performs miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus also tells us that the miracles he performs are not just ends in themselves. They are signs that point to something beyond them. They point to something greater. What they point to is that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of sinners. He's the Messiah. He is the one sent by God to put to right all that is wrong and to bring redemption and forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit then testifies to this claim that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Lord, that he is the Savior of sinners. So here's the thing. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the full and final rejection of this claim. Those words are important. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the full and final rejection of the claim that Jesus is the Son of God, the Redeemer of all things, the Savior of sinners. The reason I say that it is the full and the final rejection of those is that Jesus himself has said that all other sins and all other blasphemies are completely forgivable. Even making the claim at some point in your life that Jesus is not Lord or denying that Jesus is Lord is a completely forgivable sin. 
Jesus himself says this in verse 28. If you repent, if you go to Jesus, if you repent, if you ask for forgiveness, you will be forgiven. But to speak against the Holy Spirit, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, is to fully and finally reject Jesus. To not back off of your claim, to never turn to him, to look ultimately as a testimony of the Holy Spirit and say, you know what, you're a liar. You're not God. You're the devil. Or just simply to say, you are completely and utterly irrelevant. irrelevant to me so here's what this means if you are not a Christian the call is for you to very closely and very seriously examine the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ did he exist is he an historical figure there's tons of evidence for that everybody believes that did he perform these miracles well not even his harshest critics at the time deny that he did so what was the testimony what's the claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is the one sent by God to reverse the brokenness of this world, to bring eternal life for all who repent and believe in him. And he is worthy of your worship and of your trust. If you are a Christian, and sometimes you struggle with the assurance of your salvation, if you sometimes fixate on words like this and go oh have I done this have I committed the unforgivable sin let me encourage you with this being concerned that you have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit is sure and certain evidence that you have not let me say this again if you are ever concerned that you have blasphemed against the Holy Spirit that in and of itself is sure and certain evidence that you have not why what causes you concern that you may have committed this sin conviction of the holy spirit how is the holy the holy spirit convicting you of 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 any sin real or potential he's dwelling in your heart at work actively you know pushing you towards conviction and repentance he hasn't left you he hasn't he hasn't, he hasn't left you. He's there at work in your life. This is where I want us uh, to end. Because we generally look at a passage like this and, and we get really hung up in the mystery of it. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? You know, what does that mean? Have I done it because I don't want to do it? Or, you know, you know we get hung up right there. Uh, but don't lose sight of the words of verse 28. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. You see, if you don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit by fully and finally rejecting Jesus, there is no sin that you have ever committed, there's no sin that you will ever commit that will not be forgiven by God because Jesus himself bore them and put them to death on the cross. This should set you free and I know some people get nervous when I talk like this because it's tempting to think don't talk so much about grace you know it's going to give people a license to sin chaos will result you know but it's not if you are free in Christ you are free to love him and you are free to struggle in this world 
which is what gives you the freedom not to struggle so much to be free. And that is the best news of all. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your work that does set us free. We pray that we would grasp it and that we would, uh, and we would live by it. We ask it in your name. Amen.